Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Anne Farmer writes a lot. An independent journalist and longtime contributor to Emmy, she's profiled TV writers, producers, actors, among them Lena Dunham, Tina Fey, Claire Danes, Anthony Bourdain. Anne's articles have been published in the DGA Quarterly, as in Directors Guild of America, the New York Times, where Anne spent 10 years covering crime and local breaking news, Time Out New York, Internet Life, Village Voice, Dance Magazine, and the American Bar Association's Perspectives Magazine, to which she's contributed articles examining matters of social justice, the challenges of being a woman lawyer, and the impact of significant judicial decisions. When it comes to the law, Anne's experience originated with Court TV, where she covered the O.J. Simpson trial of the century, reported, wrote, and produced the criminal justice show, Lock and Key. She was an editor for the Center for Reproductive Rights. Her radio pieces have aired on NPR's All Things Considered, and her personal essays have appeared in the Christian Science Monitor and elsewhere. Anne's also written and directed corporate videos, educational documentaries, as well as experimental Super 8 films. Needless to say, Anne's covered a lot of ground during her impressive career, and I'm hoping to do the same with this very versatile and accomplished and clearly creative woman. So Anne, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Well, it's nice to meet you, Sandy, and thank you so much for this invitation. Going over your bio, I want to begin by saying you didn't start out wanting to be a journalist or an editor or a producer, did you? My first career, you could say, was being a dancer, a a postmodern dancer. That's what you wanted to be when you grew up? No, I, um, I always had an instinct that I was going to do something on the creative side. But I was um, in college trying to find my way when I picked up photography and just went crazy with that. And at the same time, I, uh, I, you know, I was, I decided I need to get in a little bit better shape. So I started taking dance classes and um, it just took over my life. I just uh, became completely passionate about it and uh, moved to Washington, D.C. to dance with a particular choreographer. And and my career just took off. And it was just one of those moments where you're you're running with the tide, you're running with the waves, and it was all working. And I I did that for quite a while. I mean, that's kind of fascinating because you started out in dance, quote, later in life. That's not very typical, is it? Well, you know, when I was just starting out, people were telling me about how Merce Cunningham had started dancing at age 22 or 23, and Martha Graham had started late in life. So initially, I didn't really anticipate making it a career move, um, but I did feel encouraged that you can do it. When did you decide that dance was really terrific and you really loved the career of being a dancer, that it was time to make a switch? It's a feeling. Um, It just felt like a huge release on many levels when I was taking these classes. And um, I thought, well, I can put photography aside. I can pick up photography anytime in my life, but I cannot be a dancer later on in life. This is the moment. And so I, I, you know, I went home to visit my family, which was on, it's a suburb of Washington, D.C. And while there, I took some classes with a choreographer in D.C. And 
I was just swept away by her teaching and her style. And uh, she had these live drummers in class and I showed up and I mean, there was just such an energy. And I said, you know, I have to, I have to take it to this level. I have to come here and study with her. And, and that's what I did. How did you move on from that chapter in your life? There was a period when I was flailing. I, I had a really great run as a dancer. And then this choreographer I worked very closely with decided to leave New York. And I had a bad injury at the same time. And I was kind of flailing about for a while, trying my hand at choreography. And I met another dancer who had um, quite a bit of experience in making little films experimental type films. You shoot in a Super 8 camera, mm-hmm. black and white film, and then you transfer and do fun things with it in the editing process. And uh, we worked on a little film together. And um, all of a sudden, that what I was talking about, that wave that came along when I was dancing uh, started happening again. I had opportunities all of a sudden to show these little films. We started making more. And I realized I had caught on to something again that was really working for me. And uh, at that moment, I wanted to expand my technical expertise. So I volunteered to work on a documentary about Samuel Beckett with Global Village. It was this organization, it may still be in in existence in Soho, that um, teaches people about the technology of filmmaking. And I worked on that, and all of a sudden, I had a a new interest, and it was documentaries. And from there, I knew I needed to have more experience in news and in that aspect of it. So I applied to the Columbia School of Journalism, and just, I guess, I got lucky. I got in, and then I ended up becoming a journalist. Did you always write? It was a natural act, writing? Not initially. I was really pretty poor in the beginning because I hadn't done any writing. I, dancing is about physical, physically moving. And um, so I didn't really have any need for writing. But when I was at Columbia, my, t- my professors always told me, you're really improving. And so uh, I just worked at it and worked at it. And I like technical challenges. I like the process of making writing a good sentence, making it better and better. I have no problem editing and re-editing and going back to something. And over time, you know, anybody, anybody can do it. If you work at it hard enough and you, you want to make it better, you know, it'll come. It's, it's kind of a muscle writing, I think. What is that like when you submitted your first piece? And do you remember who it was for, how that happened and what year that was to throw a million questions at you? Mm Mm-hmm. I started out small. Mm-hmm. There was this little um, website called women.com. And it was after I left Court TV and I decided I wanted to explore more just writing because, you know, when you work in film and video, you need a whole crew around you. And that was a little daunting to me because I wanted to strike out as a, and build a freelance career, but that, that seemed... Um, problematic. Whereas I thought, well, you know, writing, you can, you just need yourself, your computer. And so I struck out in that direction and I started writing these little pieces for women.com. 
it was uh, called Good News. And I, it was kind of fun because I just got to, it's so, you, news isn't usually about good news, <laughs> but in this case it was. So I got to find good stuff happening around and people were eager to be interviewed. And I mean, I would labor over those short 300 word stories in the beginning. How did you wind up at Court TV? Was that, was that right after you got out of um, Columbia? Yes. And Court TV was a fledgling organization. Just starting, yeah. That was what, 93-ish or what year was that? Yes, it was 93. I think it maybe had started in 92, perhaps. I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, they were hiring. And um, it was a great place for opportunities because uh, they just loaded you up. And so you could move up the ladder very quickly and, and get to do a lot of different things there, which I was lucky to do. And it was just, it was just a, I made a, a, friends of mine from Columbia Journalism School got me an interview and it worked out for me. But not for nothing, you know, get, your first job was on camera, correct? At Court TV? You were, no, no. You were not? Mm-mm. I was never on camera. Mm-mm. So what'd you do for them? Well, initially I was a production assistant. I worked on a nightly news show. Mm-hmm. Then I... I was doing enterprise stories, taking court cases and making a short video, making a synopsis of the case and the two sides. And then I was given the job of producing and directing Lock and Key, which was a, a weekly criminal justice show that covered the criminal justice system. And I traveled to prisons all over the U.S., and I covered parole, pardon, and sentencing hearings. And then I picked out some especially interesting hearings out of it and turned it into a show. So I actually did the producing, the directing, the reporting, and the interviewing. It was a pressured job. You had to uh, really keep it moving. What was it like for you? And I was in radio at this time, too, covering O.J. Simpson because it went on forever and everybody was riveted to this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So many cases were going on. The Menendez brothers, Lorena Bobbitt, during that period that I was there, I mean, every week there was a case of the, uh, but the O.J. Simpson trial was, of course, the the very big one. I did not go out to L.A. and uh, report on it. I, I did things for it back in New York, but it wasn't my main thrust. I think at that time I was doing the lock and key. But from the perspective of being in the newsroom, it was quite Quite a ride. And I remember the day that the verdict came down, it was quite shocking. So continue taking us on your professional trajectory. Were you doing more than one thing at a time were you at Court TV while you were editing at the Center for Reproductive Rights, or did one kind of lead into the next? Well, I think I went to work for the Center after Court TV, and I believe I did pitch a few ideas to Emmy Magazine while I was at uh, the Center for Reproductive Rights. So that was, and and also perhaps the ABA. I might might have also started writing for that. Um, for that publication, Perspectives, which is um, published by the Commission on Women in the Profession. And um, when I left 
the center, I ha already had a little bit of a foot in the door with those publications, which I continued to write for for the next um, almost 20 years, 15 years, something like that. So your career is fairly eclectic. For example, you could write, in a sense, for popular mechanics as much as you could write for Emmy. So often that's the case with journalism is that you um, pick up a brand new topic and you have to become something of an expert in order to write about it. So um, that's actually one of the most satisfying parts about being a journalist is all the things you get to learn about. Mm. Um, so yes, in that sense, for sure. How did you feel in hard news versus feature? Did one speak to you more than the other? Well, I will say that writing and reporting for the Times was very interesting for me, as opposed to, I mean, the Center for Reproductive Law and Policy, it had a certain perspective on things, and, and you didn't have the opportunity necessarily to, to present the other point of view, understandably. They're, a, you know, an advocacy organization. Sure. That's what mm -hmm. they're doing. So it was fun for me to get in to the times um, as a freelancer and uh, be able to kind of report both sides of things and create that balance, I guess, which is what the journalism school is, was, was so largely about. Hard news was really fun because you would get the call and there's a murder out here somewhere mm -hmm. out in Queens and you hop in your car as quickly as you can and you're racing out there and then you're meeting up with this gaggle of other reporters from all the other papers, the Post, the Daily News, everybody's out there, the TV people. And, um, and you're trying to uh, get some facts to report back to the the writer at the desk in the New York Times office and uh, you're trying to move as quickly as you can. It was, it was an adrenaline rush and uh, every case was a little bit different um, and you really had to use your skills at getting people to talk to you and that was really interesting. Um, yeah. Was that a natural act for you? Yeah, I found it, it came pretty well for me and I felt lucky I got a few... Um, you know, uh, inside scoops, you could say. Mm. Uh, and that was always satisfying. But, you know, you, I, I think um, I, I do feel a certain empathy uh, for the people I was interviewing. And perhaps I think that that um, was felt and that helps to get your foot in the door. Mm -hmm. uh, so being female didn't hurt in that sense. I found that to be true as well, although sometimes you could be easily dismissed as being you know, a woman. I never, uh, okay, yeah. I never felt like it was necessarily a, uh, a female-male thing. Do any stories in terms of the times just really stick out with you and you're just so glad that you were able to report them? You know, the ones that stick out are the probably like some of the more horrific crimes. I don't know. It's just, there was, there was just things that I'll never get out of my head uh, that happened in the world. And the woman who, who kept her, her husband's body in the bed for uh, another year or two, he had died and she was continuing to collect his social security and his, his body turned into a skeleton in their bed. And in her bedroom? He was 
Yes, and and, the, and then we would we oh, talk shit. to people in the in the hallways who said, "Well, they smelled this and that," and but uh, it didn't get put together for a long time. I mean, they're just stories like that that happened over. So you interviewed her? No, I did, wasn't able to. I, I I can't say that I got a lot from the family um, mm. in that case. It was more from the neighbors and the. And probably the police, you know, you have to build a relationship with the uh, detectives and hope that they'll share information with you. They're really key. How easy was it to pitch stories to the Times? I was always a freelancer. Mm-hmm. I uh, pitched many stories and I, and I had stories in the National, the Arts, the Metro, other, other sections. Um, I pitched a story. It was early on about mezuzas. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're... I saw the article you wrote. Yes, explain that for our listeners. It holds a scroll. It's something that uh, the Jewish faith places these tiny... Like almost little pieces of sculpture. Yes, and they get screwed into your doorway and you touch it on your way in and you touch it on your way out and it's like a blessing uh, for the home and and it holds a little scroll in it. Um, and I noticed them in my building on the doors. I noticed them on my door. So many Jewish families had lived in my building, for instance, and then left, and uh, the Medusa stayed there, and they were just, they were, they were like a little decoration at, at the side of your door. They didn't mean anything to me until I investigated what it was, and then I just decided to do a story about it, and uh, it it was hugely popular. It became the most popular story on the New York Times website for a couple of days. So much to your surprise, this thing really took off, huh? Yeah, it was. That was fun. I mean, in the beginning, uh, when they first started uh, keeping track of your stories and noting how many reads you had, it, it was fun to go and see. Oh, how many people have read my story? Where does it stand on the list? Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so uh, that was a fun one. Um, is one judged based on that? That must be not only a high, but it's also your career. It doesn't hurt, that's for sure. <laughs> but I don't think they do it anymore. Uh-huh. I mean, they probably have their own readings behind the lines of how many, what stories are getting, everybody's following that, right? Um, so they know who's, what stories are really hitting home with people. Sure. So... After the Times, where'd you go? I had enough. You know, covering crime is really thrilling and exciting. It's exhausting. Also. But yes, and, and running around maybe to three or four stories in a day. And I was really working for them at one point, seven days a week. No and shit. Oh, my God. I uh, just uh, reached a point where I had enough. And I um, really wanted to write. I really wanted to write better. and and. Uh, so I, I just focused on that, and that's what I've been doing ever since, really. So were the, your, the transitions for you relatively easy and painless? You just were able to sort of sashay from crime to entertainment? I wouldn't say every transition was utterly painless, but um, because a lot of times I was starting from scratch, and so you know, you always have to, you scramble a bit in the beginning of that. But like I was said earlier, I've, I learned to recognize when things are working 
and when, as opposed to when things aren't working and um, move in that direction. Be open to the possibilities and open to the opportunities that come along. And that helped me. Um, writing about TV, I was, I was just actually going through my piles of paper the other day and I was digging through all those magazines that I have stories in and I was looking at the very early ones I was writing for Emmy and uh, they were like, tended to be very short little pieces and, and my editor gradually gave me bigger and longer pieces to do. And I read one of your articles. One that stuck with me because it was personal for me was your article about the A&E um, series on Monica Lewinsky. I was riveted by this. Your piece was kind of about the making of this docu-series on this incredible, you can't make this shit up story that just riveted. What was that like? interviewing all these people who are involved in making this series and what they learned. Right. It was very interesting uh, to talk to the director because he was the one who reached out, and I believe he interviewed her. Um, She wanted her story to be told, and she was bringing a much more mature outlook to it. there was some surprising things for me as well that I learned reporting on this, which included how she didn't want to uh, get embroiled in this, but uh, she was really pursued very heavily. It wasn't just a story about Monica. It was a story about Clinton and um, these different charges that had been leveled against him by different women. And it was, you know, everybody had a different perspective from later in life. And uh, that's what I remember about it. You know, there was one part in, in, in the article where she had, and, you've, and you say, no kidding, you know, contemplated suicide. And you just, I'll just go to my grave not believing what she just had to suffer through, you know, even all these years later. There was so much ridicule um, thrown at her. But she really, um, I think she showed in that documentary that she deserved a little more more respect. For, than she for was sure. For she sure. Was a young woman. And, and that was another thing I think was, um, she's, I believe she sort of protected President Clinton. And, and, and over time she recognized that, you know, she was a young woman and she was right. vulnerable. And that, right. was, that was a big part of it, I think. For sure. How do you feel when you look back on your career? You're kind of a a Jill of all trades. You mean, how does it feel to have written about so many different subjects? Yes. Don't you look back at your writing career and your your television and radio career with a lot of awe? (laughs) Well, I have definitely tried. And um, I have been pretty fearless about trying different things and... I do feel a, a, I do feel pride in my determination to uh, make it work out. It wasn't. It isn't easy, like you were saying earlier about writing. Uh, it takes a lot of discipline, and I I'm very thankful that I was a dancer because that is where it all started in terms of discipline. You have mm-hmm. to learn. You I learned discipline by becoming a dancer. And I learned that you could improve if you just 
stuck at, stuck with it and, and kept trying. And I feel pride in myself in, with regard to that I, I did that. I really um, got through the, the hard parts. And it still isn't always easy because I sometimes a story will just you know, it's a breeze. It just mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. works right away. And other times I am just still pulling my hair, trying to make it, trying to get it to get going until you you kind of have to get that story to a certain place. And then all of a sudden it can, it starts to fly off, you know, fly through. But um, yes, I've had a, just a lot of fun. I mean, doing all these different stories. There was an editor I worked with at Court TV and it was just a very, kind of flippant remark she made one day, but she was my supervisor. Um, Bonnie Dry was her name. And she would have to look at the the um, proposals that I had for how I would shape my lock and key stories. And it would be based on these different stories of people who were locked up in prison and what got them there. And uh, Bonnie was like, well, this one really interests me. And if it interests me, I must, I, I have to assume that it's going to interest other people. And, you know, that made a lot of sense to me at that moment. Mm. If there's a topic out there that grabs my attention and I mean, I can't say that for everything because things, of course. but you know, there's a good chance that you're onto something. So if, in other words, pay attention to your instincts. Your instincts are so critical in this business. What about trust? How difficult, when you look back, was it to gain the trust of the the subjects that you might get super intimate with? I think they kind of, people figure you out pretty quickly, whether mm-hmm. you, how sincere you are and whether they can trust you. And um, I remember when I, when I interviewed Michael J. Fox and his press agent um, was very protective of him. And she was very controlling of the situation. And she, and then at a certain point, we, he and I sat down. Um, he came in and he, you know, he has Parkinson's and he was moving in a way that Parkinson's, people with Parkinson's do. They don't have complete control over their, their movements. And then he popped a couple pills. He said, I'll be, I'll be good in a few minutes. And those sort of relaxed his nerves, I guess. And so that um, he could, it was easier for him then. But in the course of us just chatting, he told his press person to, you know, leave and leave us alone. And I felt like, you know, he got a sense of me. I expected him to talk to, to me for about 20 minutes, but I think we talked for about an hour and a half. It was a, it was a really a great interview. He's such a, such a great guy. And um, he was so open. I don't remember this particular crime that occurred in New York where a man had gone and murdered a psychiatrist, but we didn't know why he had, there were no, there was no knowledge, really much knowledge of him. Uh huh. And I'm, I have to attribute this probably to the times too. I think the times has, you know, it has established itself as a, a newspaper of record and uh, one that will present a fair uh, story, and I, and we were all at the home of the father trying to get information. We were totally being blocked out. Nobody was talking. We didn't know anything, and 
um, I had gone up to the door with other reporters and knocked on it and said, I, hi, I'm Ann Farmer with the New York Times and I'd like to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. And um, then I went back to my car and I had his number and I called and he just opened up to me. He told me the whole story. So that, the Times had that, that, that scoop because he decided, the father decided to open up to me. And that's when we learned um, about his son who had uh, severe mental problems and had gone to a psychiatrist who had diagnosed him with, I think, manic depression. I'm, don't, quote, don't quote me on that. Don't quote myself on that. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. he um, had gone back to that same doctor's office and I don't think the doctor was in, and he ended up murdering the the, the psychiatrist next door. Right. That I yeah. Now I remember that because we certainly obviously covered that story. You know, I want to ask you what the balance is between an assignment and you pitching. Obviously, if you're on staff, that's another ball game. But how often are you able to pitch stories? Well, I used to pitch all the time. Um, that was how I I, I got going with. Um, magazines I pitched to oh, Time Out, Village Voice, Dance Magazine, yeah, uh, Yahoo Inter- Internet Life. I, um, I didn't have to pitch to them. I, ha- I had a relationship with an editor who gave me assignments, but um, you know, you have to be prepared to be rejected. A lot of stories do get rejected more than probably you pitch, especially in the beginning. Uh, you know, you have to know the publication and it has to be an appropriate story for them. And, uh, but they have to fill pages. So they're looking for, for um, writers with a, with a story that works for them. And um, you feel like you have put a lot of wasted effort into writing <laughs> pitches uh-huh. and pitching things and pursuing them. But then, you know, every now and then someone says yes, and you're thrilled to write it. and. And it gets a little bit easier as time goes on. And then you build relationships with editors. I haven't been pitching much. I, I occasionally pitch to my editors at Emmy. Um, and the last story I did for the DGA Quarterly, I, I really wanted to do it, was about the directing of Better Call Saul, which I love that TV show so much. And um, I've written stories for the DGA Quarterly for a long time about the directing process of mainly TV shows. And um, so I just really wanted to do this story because I, I just love, it's so visually exciting and so creative. The DGA Quarterly, unfortunately, is, um, is, is no longer, it may rise again, but it's um, been, because of the pandemic, they decided to um, put it aside for time, for the time being. It's satisfying when you get to do something you really want to do. <laughs> Has there been anybody famous that you just thought, oh, shit, I can't believe I'm interviewing so-and-so, and that you were kind of over the moon about, or just, yeah, I, I just died and went to heaven? <laughs> yeah, many people. And in no particular order. Right. I remember when I interviewed Lena Dunham, she, she was so much younger then. And she weren't we all, Anne? She just was starting, and she was just she was late for the interview, and but she was so apologetic and just um, uh, so open. It's always fun. Anthony Bourdain, uh, he was just such a a lovely man, and so such a willing interviewee. 
Uh, I loved meeting him. Claire Danes, I've, I've done a couple stories on her and her, her uh, role in Homeland, and she's so smart and uh, also so down to earth and uh, unpretentious. And I love it. Most of the time, that's the case, is, is that there are these big stars, big names, but then when you meet them, they're just, uh, just really great people. And uh, one of my favorite moments was when I was interviewing Mandy Patinkin, and he burst into song. <laughs> from, it was that song from South Pacific, uh, the one where you must be, to, uh, you must be taught to hate. And oh, okay. You know, uh, You've got to be taught. Yes, and he mm-hmm. sang it to me in the middle of a, a restaurant <laughs> bar, and everybody else was walking by and looking, and like, oh, that's Minnie Patinkin. You got your own personal performance. Uh, yes, one woman, was, one man show for one woman. Right, and it really showed me, you know, uh, Mandy's all heart, and he really cares about the world, and he wants people to be good. Amy Sedaris was a, was a gas, but mm. you would expect her to be, you know, her of to course. be yeah. And she just totally hosts you in her home, and she's great. And I wanted to ask you, who would you like to interview that you haven't before you put your pen down? Uh-huh. Hmm, well... I haven't really thought about that. I'm not being facetious. I think that's a great answer because obviously your rich career has afforded you all these wonderful people to meet and get to know. You know, I, I just finished a story about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I've done three, at least three stories on her, but I've never, I've interviewed her, her nephew and different people around her, but I never got to interview her. That would have been lovely because she was such an inspiration. And, um, you know, to sit in her presence would have been something. I bet. I bet. So you still have many more stories to write, huh, Ann Farmer? We'll see. I'm not uh, ready to put that pen down. No, I am still enjoying it. I think that's terrific. Speaking of enjoying it, I've really enjoyed meeting and get to know you. You've given us enough to keep us busy in terms of what you've written so we can have Ann Farmer with us for a very long time. Oh, Sandy, thank you so much. It was really fun to do this, and I appreciate your uh, taking an interest. Oh, totally my pleasure. Well, again, thank you so much, and keep us abreast of what goes on in your life. And if you want to ever do a part two, you know where to find me and I know where to find you. Okay, I'll do that. Thank you, Sandy. You're very welcome. Totally my pleasure. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Mm -hmm.